0: and rejoiced that it was over. Maybe you were studying for this huge test and you studied and studied and studied and finally you took the test, you passed the test, it's over and you're like, "Woo, it's over. Or maybe not even a test, maybe it was a class. There was like one class, you have to graduate from this class to get out of college, you know, and graduate college and so, you got to pass this one class and and finally you make it through this really difficult class and you pass and you graduate and you're like woo and you're so glad that you got to the end of that class. And the reality is in those situations what you really have there is a situation where um, we're celebrating the end that is really the beginning because usually when you graduate from college that's the end of something but it's the start of something brand new and really you you go on from there and for the next you know how many years you're working and enjoying the fruits of your time in college in fact after about 10 jobs then you start plotting your next ending when can i retire when can i retire and when can i get out of the workforce and uh, but the end it's like the end is oftentimes it is just the beginning i want to start a new series today um, a new series called Enough. We're going to be looking at this for several weeks, this idea of how Christ is enough, the sufficiency that we have in Christ. And Christ is certainly enough. Now we understand that on a theological level, we understand you know, the gospel and how he's enough for our salvation. But I wonder when it comes to the day-to-day life that we lived, if we really understand Christ is truly enough. He is sufficient for everything that we will ever go through what i want to kind of do in this series is kind of each week try to find a common flesh pattern or two that we can tie this back into um, those things that we struggle with uh, in our flesh for instance when i doubt christ is enough when i fear christ is enough when i am overwhelmed in my anger and my anxiety when i wrestle with my self-image christ is enough when i have reservations christ is enough and so hopefully each week we can We can find a common flesh pattern or two that we can tie this back into and link this back into as we look at this reality of how Christ is enough in every area of our life, what that looks like, what that means. And hopefully even really tied even into a specific event. You know, where the rubber hits the road is when do I fear? Where do I have anxiety? Why do I struggle with my self-image? If we find those specific areas of life, if we bring all that together, this could be a really powerful and practical series of messages driving home the fact that Christ is always enough we're gonna start this morning really at the foundation at the gospel we're gonna go to the gospel and we're gonna gonna look at uh, well let's start right here in John 19 here's the the, the the end of the gospel uh, on the cross Jesus uh, has seven famous sayings the, these are sayings five and six we'll see five and six and we'll even see seven today as we go through this but here's what he says after this Jesus knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so I want us to focus there. It's the second the last thing Jesus says on the cross when he says, it is finished. And what I want us to realize this morning is that when Jesus says it is finished, that he is up proudly and publicly proclaiming from the the cross he is speaking that to each one of us personally he is saying to each one of us in this room today it is finished in your life and and what does that look like across the broad spectrum of our life Um, i'm excited about this series i've thought about this for a while and it's going to be i think really interesting to go through and look at how christ is truly enough in all of the various areas of our life just to know that he is speaking that to us personally so We're going to jump in here today. Here's our big idea. He's speaking this this to us personally. Here's our big idea. When Jesus finished the work on the cross, in reality, it was just the beginning for us, his followers. When he says on the cross, "It is finished," and it is finished, the work is done. It's finished. But in reality, for those of us who are his followers, he's just getting started in your life and in my life. And everything that the cross meant and was intended to be is is intended to be lived out in our lives on a day-to-day basis. And there is a world around us that desperately needs to see the gospel lived out in our lives. So this morning we have four simple realities that were finished at the cross We could probably come up with more i know i had more we i just i scaled it down to these four really big ideas that we're going to just touch on briefly here and the first one is this is that christ's identification with humanity was complete when jesus said it is finished he was saying my identification with humanity is complete here's what i mean christ came to the earth he came on a mission john 3 16 for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life that was his mission to come to the earth to come and save humanity going all the way back to genesis chapter 3 and the fall of mankind so he comes on this mission in fact john 1 9 the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him he came to his own and his own people did not receive him verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He came on a mission. And he came and he moved into our world. There's a popular paraphrase. I don't get too cracked up about the paraphrase itself. But there's a popular paraphrase that, that, that says, verse 14, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I kind of do like that kind of imagery there. It's the, the reality that Christ came to this earth and he moved into the neighborhood. He came here to identify with humanity. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to to contrast the incarnation with the crucifixion. And I want you to see something. So if we go to this idea, Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Go to Hebrews chapter 2 with me here and look at this a minute here. We have the incarnation. Here's what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery so at the incarnation Jesus Christ moved into we could say the neighborhood he moved into the world he came into the world took on flesh and blood became a human being but at the crucifixion something else happens and he more fully identifies with our humanity look at this Jesus moved into our house we could say at the crucifixion that's what we could say Hebrews 2.16, for surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps you and me. And then therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted and so if we said at the incarnation he moved into the neighborhood we can say at the crucifixion he moved into your home he moved into your life into your circumstances into the trials and the challenges and the things that you face specifically in your home and we're all going through different things and our homes all look differently we all have different challenges and Christ knows what every one of those challenges look like you know there's this this interesting reality well we could say it this way At the incarnation, Jesus took on humanity. At the crucifixion, he took on our humanity. He took on our sinful humanity. He took on my personal, Bill Russell's personal humanity and all the junk in my life and all the struggles I go through. And you can all say that about your own self. It wasn't just he generically came and became a human being. He became each one of us. The one who knew no sin became sin so that we could have his righteousness. Now, it's really fascinating because... When you think about, well, for instance, here's some examples. The one who never drank in excess knows what it's like to be an alcoholic. The one who never told a lie knows what it's like to be a pathological liar. The one who never stole a thing knows what it likes, knows what it feels like to be guilty of stealing. The one who never had a sexual encounter of any kind knows what it is like to be sexually abused. He knows in, in, the, in the Me Too movement era, he knows what it's like to be the abuser and the abused. Think about that. He knows both sides of the coin. He, he knows what it's like um, in that reality. That's why the cross is, has been coined by some a scandal of grace. There's a song that was put out a few years ago called A Scandal of Grace. And it's taken from Romans 9.33. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame and that word offense it's the word it's the greek word scandal it's where we get our word scandalous and it's the idea that 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 really the cross is kind of like a scandal a scandalous event and if you follow the ministry and teaching of jesus throughout the gospels there were lots of times jesus had some scandalous teaching some scandalous we should say relationships for instance how about the story of the prodigal son and how that turned out boy the religious elite that was scandalous I mean, come on. How about the woman taken in adultery? And again, the way Jesus handled that was scandalous. And he let her off the hook. And we can think of different stories. One of the more famous encounters of Jesus that ties back into the crucifixion, I think beautifully, is the story of the woman at the well in John 4. And here comes, again, a woman. And, and unfortunately, and I've met, mentioned this before, we define her by her past, unfortunately. We know her as the woman at the well, and the woman who had you know all these, uh, these uh, past husbands, and she had been divorced numerous times, and that's how we define her, not by what Christ did in her life. But the reality is there's this woman at the well. And I want you to think about this. Listen to this. Jesus said to her, the woman at the well, when he met her, And this is the scandalous thing I want you to see here. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Um, And it was kind of scandalous that he was even talking to this woman. But here's what I think is so fascinating. Juxtapose that now with what Jesus says when he's hanging on the cross. This is shortly before he gives up uh, the ghost, before he dies shortly before he dies. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. He knows he's finished everything. He knows he's gonna die and just, he knows it's coming on and he says, I thirst. I don't think when he says, I thirst, he is speaking just of, I'm thirsty physically. I think what he's saying is, Jesus, the living water, was now thirsty. He now knew what it felt like to be the woman at the well. I mean, how amazing is that? How scandalous is that? That the one who came and ministered to the woman at the well and said, I can give you eternal living water, you'll never be thirsty again. And here he is. He's what? He's thirsty. Pretty amazing. There's another example of this also seen in the uh, crucifixion. It's about the sixth hour. So from three to six, he's on, or from 12 to three, he's on the cross. And from three to six, he's on the cross. The sixth hour would actually be... Um, Uh, I'm getting confused here, but anyway, this is the time from from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock. It's about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So that would be from 3 o'clock to 6 would be the sixth to ninth hour in their clock. And notice, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light faded. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and having said this, he breathed his last. And so what happens here at the end is that basically Jesus says, I thirst. He says, it is finished. The curtain rips in two. And then he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. But notice what happens here from 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock is that darkness consumes the whole land. And, and juxtapose that with these verses again in John chapter 1. In him was life and the life was what? The light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. But for this, these few hours, for these three hours, it really appears that Jesus, the light of the world, was now consumed in darkness. He, knows, he, he knew at this moment what it felt like to be the blind man that he healed, that couldn't see. He, he knew what it felt like to be that blind man. He had so entered into our own humanity And so when Jesus says it is finished at the cross, he's saying that he has fully entered into our humanity and identified with us in ways that um, he had never really totally done before until the cross. Pretty amazing. Really pretty amazing indeed. Here's the second thing when he says it is finished. Second thing that it means. It means that Satan, sin, and death were defeated. Satan, sin, and death were defeated. All three of them and they all kind of are linked in and kind of tied into one another now from the beginning of the scriptures when you go when you think about it go back to Genesis 3 you'll see all three of these are tied together Satan sin and death are all linked as one Um, Romans uh, 623 shows us the eternal relationship between sin and death for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, sin uh, brings about death. Satan brings sin, sin brings death. They're, all three are, they're just related throughout scripture. And that goes back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, and we see this reality. But let's look at all three of them just individually for a moment here and realize that each one of them were defeated at the cross. See, at the cross, the power of sin, which is realized in my flesh, Paul talks about this a lot, It was defeated. And there's an incredible amount of freedom in that reality that I am free today from the power of sin. 1 Peter 2.24 He, Christ Himself, bore our sins in His body on the tree. He bore my individual sins. He, again, knows what it feels like to be me. He identified with me. But but He he bore uh, our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. And the reality is he wants us to die to sin. He has conquered sin. He has defeated the power of sin in my flesh. So I don't have to give in to sin. I don't have to live a life of sin. I don't have to give in to temptation. We, we do. We struggle with our flesh. All of us do. Your pastor does. I'm sure every one of you do. That's just the common reality of life. But the truth is we don't have to. I mean, we really have the power in Christ to stand up to our flesh and to defeat the power of sin and uh, we just need to know that and he died for each person when you think about it when he's hanging on the cross there's a person on each side of him right there's two men there and one of the men actually professes faith in christ at, the, at that moment and christ says today you'll be with me in paradise and the truth is jesus died for both of those men died for both of their sins paid the price for both of their sins but the free will was up, was up to them it's our free will to choose the redemption, the forgiveness that Christ offers us. we choose that by faith, we receive His forgiveness, and then when we receive it, we get with that, we get the power over sin. We do not have to live under the power uh, of sin anymore and live a defeated life. We just don't. Um, second thing here at the at the cross, the curse of sin, which is the reality of death, was also conquered. That's why I just... I really don't mind doing funerals, especially when I do funerals for those that are believers. It's just an amazing thing to do a funeral for a believer because it's such a hopeful event. There is so much hope wrapped up in that because the curse of sin, the reality of death has been conquered. We read this a moment ago, back in Hebrews 2 again, because God's children, human beings, made of flesh and blood The Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, which is what? Who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. In fact, a cool verse in Revelations, he says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades jesus our king has the keys to death and hell and when he died on the cross he took them from satan and said you no longer even you don't even have the authority over hell anymore think about that because hell is kind of like satan's stomping grounds right it's like his kingdom and even god has the keys to satan's kingdom christ took them when he defeated him at the cross and that's the third reality here think about this so it's it's amazing every time you're reading a story or studying you go to the scriptures and you'll read something you've read a thousand times and you'll always see something new and so this 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 week I'm studying and I came to this passage here so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which is in Aramaic which is called Golgotha and that jumped out at me I thought what a dark name for this hill the place of the skull and I thought well Maybe it's because it's close to Halloween. I don't think that's why. Maybe that's why. But it jumped out at me. It's like, why was Christ crucified on the place of a skull, which is called Golgotha? And um, anybody know why? Because I just did a little study on that and came up with one interesting thought. Here's what I think is kind of interesting. So at the cross, the threat of Satan and Satan himself was crushed. And there is this really amazing prophecy that God gives back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Back after man commits the first sin there and uh, God comes in with his first promise, makes his first promise to Adam and Eve and to all of humanity, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says this to Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, that word bruise is the same Uh, same Greek word for both. But the word bruise can mean anything from bruise to strike at to crush. And what it means in one sense is that he will crush the head of Satan and he will basically bruise the heel of Christ. And that's what happened at the cross. At the cross, Satan had a little strike against the heel of, of Christ and he put a few scars on him. But what did Jesus do at the cross? He crushed what? The head of Satan. At where? At the skull. At Golgotha. How cool is that? that on the skull that's where christ was crucified where he crushed the head of satan and defeated him for all times uh, there is it's just amazing you know you never read that a thousand times and never drew the correlation between the true uh, between the two how amazing the reality is sin satan hell all defeated at the cross that is the reality that we need to be aware of that's what took place at the cross ran across this interesting story the story has a a semi-biblical tone a man and woman together in a garden come across a serpent the serpent awakens them to their own mortality and their lives are changed forever but that's where the similarity is in because in this story the man grabbed a shovel to decapitate the snake a four-foot long western diamondback rattlesnake after it spooked his wife and when he went to pick up the severed head it sank its fangs into his flesh and released a near-deadly dose of venom. About two miles into the drive to the hospital, her husband began having seizures, lost his vision, and unknown to them, began bleeding internally. So she met up with an ambulance and then a helicopter, which flew the 40-year-old to the hospital as his organs were already shutting down. A severed viper head certainly can deliver a dangerous bite, Ask him the unsecured head of a recently killed snake. Harry Green, a biology professor at Cornell University, told NPR. Green suspects he was injected with a powerful dose of venom. Living snakes typically strike quickly and rear back from whatever threat they perceive. But because the, the one in this instance was dead, it most likely attached onto on until somebody, someone forcibly removed it. And so here, the man kills the snake and the snake tries to kill him back. The reality is, is that Satan has been defeated, sin has been defeated, but They have not been vanquished. They still are free to roam. They, for some reason, God has let them have some freedom to roam yet, and Satan still strikes out at us. Satan or sin attacks us through the flesh, and um, that's the reality. But they have been defeated, and if we put our faith and trust in Christ, we know we have achieved the victory over them through Christ. Four realities that happened. At the cross here's the third reality the work was complete the work was complete when jesus said it is finished jesus was saying that the work was done what work the work of our salvation our salvation was done our justification our redemption our reconciliation our regeneration our sanctification really christ does all the work and then it's up to us to go and to live out that reality in our life to work out our salvation to live out the gospel the moment the work was done it's kind of cool you can actually go to the scriptures and say this was exactly the moment the work was done Uh, when was the work done well here it is in Luke 23 it was now about the sixth hour again and there was darkness over the whole land. we read this a minute, minute ago until the ninth hour while the Sun's light faded and the curtain of the temple was torn in two Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And so here he is hanging on the cross, and um, it's darkness, he's been on there for three hours. Those three hours, I believe, represent when he took on spiritual death, when he spiritually bore our sins in his body on that cross for three hours. When he, when he identified with the woman at the well, when he identified with all those blind people, with everybody from the Me Too movement, you name it, he knew what every ugly sin mankind could ever face was like, and he bore them in his body on the tree. And at the end of those three hours, he says, I thirst. He says, it is finished, and the, and the thing rips in two, or vice versa, it rips in two, and he says, it is finished. And then he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And... Um, When was the work done? The minute that 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 thing ripped in two. The law was satisfied. The work was done. There was nothing left uh, for you and I to do in regards to our salvation. That is the simple reality. He had satisfied satisfied God. You know what's really fascinating is before the cross, uh, good works preceded salvation as a demonstration of faith. So man, just understand this. Man at no point in, in the Bible was man ever saved by their good works. But in the Old Testament what happened was, is that if you had faith, you demonstrated that faith by doing good works. And so we could literally say that in the Old Testament and in the Gospels before the cross that you did good works and they preceded your salvation and they demonstrated you had faith. Because no amount amount of good works would ever earn you your salvation, would ever make you worthy of heaven. No amount of good works. And so your good works didn't save you, but but you would do good works and say, I believe if I do these good works, God will have grace on me. And you did those good works in faith. And so we could say before the cross, good works preceded salvation. Here's the thing, after the cross, good works precede salvation as a demonstration of faith. After we're saved, now we do good works, to prove that Christ is in us, that we have been saved, we've been redeemed. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So see, we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by grace through faith. For we are his workmanship though, in verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So on one hand, the work's all done there's no work left to be done to, as far as my salvation's involved. No sacrifices need to be offered. Nothing has to be brought. Um, but there's still work to do because Christ is in me and Christ living through me is gonna do all kinds of good works and gonna reach out into this world and shine brightly in a dark world. How amazing. How beautiful. After the cross, our good works precede our salvation as a demonstration of our faith. That's the difference the cross makes. Let me give you four quick realities of this, the practical realities of this outworking. One thing the cross does here is this totally eliminates performance-based living. Totally eliminates performance-based living. I, I don't have to to live in any way to get God's approval or acceptance. He accepts me just as I am. He is. If I Come to, Christ, come to God through Christ, through the cross, through the gospel. Put my faith and trust in what he did. I'm accepted in the beloved. And it, it takes all of the performance-based living out of my life and what freedom that gives us. And some people know what that's like more than others. Some people have maybe lived, you know, you live in homes where people expect you to perform to get their acceptance. God is not like that in any way at all. Second thing is this totally eliminates the, any limits on what we can do. It eliminates any limits on what we can do because we're told in Philippians 4.13 that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The reality is I can handle, I can face anything that God sends my way through the power of Christ. Anything that God sets in my path, anything God asks me to do, any good work God wants me to perform, I can fulfill it through the power of Christ because He does the work. That's the reality. In fact, C says it this way, I'm only working out what God has already worked in. So anything I do, any good work that I do, I'm just working out what he has worked in me. He's justified me, redeemed me, regenerated me, made me alive in him. He has sanctified me and set me apart. He's made me pur- pure and perfect and beautiful and holy and lovely. And it's just my job to find that and live that out and not live out of the ugliness and the corruption of my flesh. I'm only working out what God has already worked in. And finally, that means everything I do can be done for God's glory. Everything I do, if everything I do, if I'm just working out everything God has worked in me, everything I do, God gets the glory. Bill Russell doesn't get the glory, God gets the glory. Because I didn't do it. It's not about me. It's not about how great I am. So, the work was done the work was done looking back to these four realities here um, Christ's identification with humanity was complete Um, Satan's sin and death were defeated the work was done and here's our last one the last reality is this the search for significance was ended the search for significance was ended. And you know, you think about this, and I even think about throughout the Bible, we see there's this search for significance, the search to be to find the significance of life, to have a life that matters and means something and makes a difference, and a life that, that is fulfilling and rewarding. And you think about that reality. I even think about Solomon, because Solomon's, his book of Ecclesiastes is, is all about the search for significance. And here is, here is Solomon, who was the richest man ever and the wisest man ever, Most likely next to Jesus, the wisest man ever. And um, incredible wisdom, incredible wealth. And here's, here's the wisest man ever. He struggled with this search for significance because he had all that money and it kind of messed up his, kind of played with his mind and he got confused about what really made him significant. And so there's Solomon who wrestles with this and throughout the Bible we see and on the cross Jesus comes along and says, I can tell you I, I can I can once and for all uh, answer the question, uh, what makes a significant life? Because no one lived a more significant life than Christ did. And so, what's the key to significance? Well, we see it here. It's in um, John nineteen seventeen. Jesus shows us that significance is found in our cross. John nineteen seventeen. And listen, and, and the Bible uses language that is very deliberate. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross Note it says bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which is which in aramaic is called golgotha lots of times we say that christ died on our cross and i understand the terminology there but the reality is this was really his cross no one could bear the cross that christ bore but him and he went out bearing his own cross and where do we get the significance of christ we get it from the fact that he died on the cross in fact i read a a thing this week about that how the the death of jesus is so distinguished from any other death because you don't talk about like if you talk about the assassination you can think of all kinds of people that were assassinated you think of all kinds of ways that people died but when you talk about the crucifixion you think of one person you think of christ and uh, yes his crucifixion his cross that was the the significance uh, of life he shows us that and and then he gives us this simple challenge to us we don't have to carry christ's cross only our own cross that's the challenge we're given and he tells us this he said to them if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me so we're called to take up our cross not the cross of christ he did that work only he could bear that cross only he could do that work only he was sinless that was the cross for the one who was sinless and pure and holy if I allow myself to be crucified with him on his cross, I am then pure and sinless and holy. And then I can take up my own cross. And what happens when I take up my own cross? I can find a life of significance. I, I can find a life that makes a difference. I can find the life that satisfies in a way that so many other lives don't. I found this uh, interesting little couple of quotes here. Does wealth, fame, and success fill the emptiness in the human heart? Two contemporary celebrities who seem to have everything have shared a similar truth. First, uh, Tom York, frontman of the band Radiohead, said, I thought when I got to where I wanted to be, everything would be different. I'd be somewhere else. I I thought it'd be all white, fluffy clouds, and then I got there and I'm still here. When the interviewer asked, why in the end have you done what you've done? York replied, it's filling the hole. That's all anyone does. What happens to the hole, the interviewer said after a long pause, York said, it's still there. More recently, when NBA superstar Kevin Durant was asked about his spike in technical fouls and ejections, Durant said, it's just my emotions and passion for the game. After winning that championship, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought it would fill a certain void. It didn't. See, there's something that's missing in everyone's life. It's, it's your cross. It's finding your cross. It's taking up your cross and following Christ. That's the life of significance. And I don't know what, you know, I was, I was thinking a, a deeper study we don't have time to get into this morning. But what does our cross look like? And we could all talk about that because I think in some respects all of our crosses look a little different from what we go through and what we deal with. But in a kind of a, kind of a more general sense, it looks like uncompromising truth. It's so when I stand for truth in a world that says there is no truth. And the world tries to say there's no truth today, and and uh, yeah, there's truth. You know why the world wants to downplay truth and say you know there's no you know everybody's truth is their own and there's no you know absolute truth. You know why? It's because Jesus Christ is what the way, the truth, and the life. If you undermine the truth, you undermine undermine Christ, and that's that's the heart of it all. Just to undermine Christ. He's the threat. It, what's so amazing is he's he's the key to what to a life of significance and he's the very thing that everybody wants to constantly undermine so our cross looks like uncompromising truth it looks like radical grace it just looks like that the scandal of grace the life that jesus lived that was so scandalous and i have to ask myself what have i ever done that when it comes to grace has been scandalous that they would say look what pastor bill did yeah, I mean we live pretty safe. Uh, we live pretty protected. We protect our image, and we, and I understand there's a point there where you have to. There's a fine line there. But how radical is our grace and reaching out to a lost world and then finally abundant life, which is taking up our cross. It's the Christ life. Um, that's what our cross looks like in a general sense. We can all answer that in a more personal sense. But we're going to celebrate communion, and I'm going to ask. Uh, uh, the men to come down I asked them earlier if they'd uh, help me this morning with communion and I'm thinking as we go to communion today about just this one verse here in First Corinthians 11:28. it says let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup and as we pass out the elements and as there's some music playing and we have some time to meditate and think let's just take this time to examine our own life and uh, there are some questions that are on your handouts there and they'll on the screen as well that we can meditate on and we can think about this reality of what does it mean to me when Christ tells me personally he says to me saying to each one of us it is finished it is finished and I am enough when Christ says that to you what does that mean to you um, let's meditate on that this morning and let's make this time very meaningful so you guys can stand and um, you can pass out uh, the bread if you would